Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. The 1960s were a decade of radical change. Civil rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights. And while the decade saw tremendous breakthroughs, it also sparked some strong backlash. By 1969, a cast of characters, some well-known, others less so, had come together to organize a political counterforce. And key to their success, white women. This is White Picket Fence, a podcast about the fractured, and often frustrating, politics of white women. I'm Julie Kohler, a writer and gender justice advocate. I've been writing about white women's politics since shortly after the 2016 election, when so many of us realized that we had not done enough, not merely in that election, but in helping to build a country that reflected the values we profess to hold. Over the last two weeks, we've gone back in history to examine what's kept white women as a conservative voting bloc. We've looked at white women's personal interest in maintaining white supremacy, an interest that's close to home and often tied to schools and nuclear families. That interest has been weaponized by a vast right-wing organizing machine. Today, we're talking about the conservative infrastructure that has activated white women politically for decades. It's intricately tied to another core part of identity, religion. For the very center of the conservative political machine is the religious right. What I find is most people who haven't studied the Christian right Um, They think that it's sort of an organic movement that grew out of people's religious beliefs and fervor. Reverend Jennifer Butler is the president of Faith in Public Life, a national movement of faith and religious leaders working to advance justice, equality, and the common good. But I think it's important for us all to understand that the religious right was created. It's man-made. There was no accident about it. And perhaps the most influential man in this movement is someone you've probably never heard of, Paul Weyrich. Paul Weyrich was a political operative working for Richard Nixon. His goal? To expand the conservative coalition. And he was searching for a way to bring Southern Democrats into the Republican Party and into the new right. He was looking for a way to unite evangelicals and Catholics behind a common agenda. And he had a hunch that the issue might be abortion. Abortion access wasn't always a partisan issue. When he was governor of California, Ronald Reagan signed legislation to decriminalize abortion in the state. Jerry Falwell Sr. and the Southern Baptist Convention actually had a pro-choice policy. But Paul Weyrich recognized that abortion could be twisted to represent a lot of things considered taboo for social conservatives, like sex outside of marriage. And therefore, he believed the issue could be a real winner for Republicans. Weyrich and his group of early religious right figures were already using the church to avoid progress on another political front, segregation. Why can't black kids date white kids? 
We stand against the one world government, against the coming world of Antichrist, which is a one world system, a blending of all differences, a blending of national differences, economic differences, church differences. In an attempt to keep their kids out of integrated public schools, white segregationists in the South created Christian private schools. So the Supreme Court you know, made a decision to censure some of the white private Christian segregation academies, like the one Jerry Falwell had started in Oral Roberts for barring African-American students from their schools. And they said, you know, if, you, if you're going to do that, you can't have tax-free status. And they were livid about that. This policy was challenged separately in federal court in the mid-70s by two schools, Bob Jones University in South Carolina and the Goldsboro Christian Schools in North Carolina. Each on grounds their racial policies were dictated by religious beliefs. So we need to understand that the Christian right was really born out of the fight against desegregation. And that's what originally galvanized them. And then later they needed to apply a sort of fig leaf to that. And uh, abortion became the kind of issue that they could more righteously galvanize behind. The white supremacist origins of the religious right explain a lot, including why white evangelicals today support a president who, in many ways, makes a mockery of their religious and moral values. Wyrick himself had some extreme religious views that clarify his preoccupation with both segregation and abortion rights. And, you know, what's interesting about Paul Weyrich is he just straight up considered himself, quote, a dominionist. That's Elise Hoag, president of NARAL, Pro-Choice America, and co-author of The Lie That Binds, which traces the rise of the far right. And that is a school of belief that God actually gave dominion to white fundamentalist Christian men over all systems of power. So certainly the family, right? Heteronormative families with men at the top. Um, but that also extended to social, economic, and political systems. So on a conference call with other conservative thought leaders in the late 1970s, Wyrick made a proposal. They actually were casting about for a new issue and they batted around a whole bunch of them. And they said, what about abortion? And that's literally how abortion came to be, not just the center of the political conversation for the Republican Party, but actually, as we call it, a Trojan horse around which they were able to build what we call a control agenda, an agenda that was actually dedicated to maintaining the status quo of white patriarchal control against a backdrop of a really dynamically changing society. The strategic decision to latch on to abortion was about so much more than the procedure itself. It was about protecting a way of life that was threatened by the changing laws and norms of the 1960s and 70s. In 1972, a court ruling determined that contraception must be legalized for unmarried women. That gave women a new level of control and autonomy over their lives and careers. But what it really did was mean that women were entering the workplace in control of their own fertility and not leaving when they got pregnant. And so they, once they were there and staying, they were making all sorts of other demands. Imagine like, we want pay equity. We want access to the C-suite. Oh my God, we want workplaces without harassment. And that was incredibly destabilizing. 
It was destabilizing to the status quo in the white patriarchy on an economic level, right? They were being challenged for the first time in a real way for hegemonic control of our economic systems. And it was challenging all the way down to a personal level, right? If you were the head of your household and your entire identity as a white man was knowing that you were going to be able to plot a path of just infinite succession economically and in the workplace and um, sort of that was your role in the family, all of a sudden that was upended. But Wyrick and his crew understood that corralling a movement around contraception was likely not going to prove successful. But what they banked on, and it was effective, is the idea that if they picked abortion, heretofore not a very talked about or central issue, that it would tap into all of those broader concerns. It would be almost a dog whistle for people who were, you know, hostile towards the social changes happening. And it would tap into a lot of cultural discomfort. It wasn't just men who sought to return to an era of more quote unquote traditional values. Women, specifically white women, played a huge role in the movement, led by standard bearer Phyllis Schlafly. I would like also to thank my husband Fred for letting me come. I love to say that because it irritates the women's livers more than anything I say. Phyllis Schlafly was an extraordinary villain for the women's rights movement. She traveled the country organizing women to fight against progress. Despite the fact that she herself was no typical suburban housewife, she was a full-time activist with a law degree. Schlafly used her incredible communication skills to rally others in the fight for the so-called privilege of that role. The major objection to the Equal Rights Amendment is that it would take away from women rights and privileges which they now have. Rights to uh, stay home. They still have that right. The Equal Rights Amendment does not take away that right. But not according to law. According to the best constitutional authority and the debates in the Senate, uh, this would remove and wipe out the laws of the 50 states which make the husband primarily responsible for the financial support of his wife and children. Phyllis Schlafly also harnessed a powerful force, fear of the unknown. Elise spoke to the effectiveness of that strategy. What Phyllis Schlafly was able to tap into was privilege by proximity, right? And the idea that you could actually create conditions where women would be more responsive to hanging on to what they have in a tumultuous time when you can't see to the other side and where your place will be than to taking the leap of faith that we can move to, towards a more equitable society. She is best known for her successful opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. Her organization, Stop ERA, actually stood for Stop Taking Our Privileges. But her contribution to conservative power building goes beyond the defeat of that amendment. Schlafly solidified a base of highly religious white women who remain loyal to the Republican Party to this day. Here's Reverend Jennifer Butler again. I think, you know, the Christian right can kind of woo women as well with a sort of, quote, pro-family agenda that feels to them like it honors their role and their desire and role to be nurturers and to raise children and have strong families. So on one level, it sometimes seems to give them a revered and important role. But when you scratch the surface, you realize that it's a really confined role. Convincing white women to hang on to what they have was pretty transparently Schlafly's strategy. 
This tendency of white women to cling to privilege didn't end with Phyllis Schlafly. It endures to this day, as does the activist infrastructure the religious right built. Initially, though, the movement's growth relied on an extensive network of churches, solidifying its worldview and aligning theology and politics. This required some selective interpretation of Christian teachings. Reverend Butler describes the theology as a form of Christian nationalism. And just as the religious right's early political acts were rooted in white supremacy, so was its theology. You know, it's interesting just to think about how different the majority of black theology versus white theology has been in this country in particular. And I think one of the important conversations that's come up in the past couple of years is this need to distinguish between black and white evangelicals. Most African-Americans are evangelical in their faith, technically, but they actually follow the whole Bible is the way I'd like to put it. They actually pay attention to what happened in Exodus, that Exodus was about a people being freed by God from slavery, (laughs) and that all of scripture is really about liberation, whereas uh, white Christians tend to sort of ignore those parts. Jen told me that at one point, white Christian missionaries were even instructed to cut out portions of the Bible, namely those that had to do with slavery, because they were deemed too radical. No matter what your views are on the Christian right's interpretation of scripture, it's clear that the movement has grown into a powerful force in American politics and the core of the Republican Party. 81% of white evangelical voters supported Donald Trump this election, according to exit polls. But conservative organizing extended beyond religious circles into the world of business and galvanized worshipers of a different type of global philosophy, free market economics. The operation of the free market is so essential, not only to promote productive efficiency, but even more to foster harmony and peace among the peoples of the world. Thanks to the largesse of a few deep-pocketed donors, folks like the Koch brothers and the Olin and Bradley Foundations, conservatives built a political machine designed to elect free market conservatives and advance their policy priorities. And a major target for that organizing? Yep, white women. A prime example of this kind of organizing is a Koch Brothers-aligned and funded organization called the Independent Women's Forum. The Independent Women's Forum grew out of a small group of women who were the ones who backed Clarence Thomas when he was nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. Lisa Graves leads an organization called True North Research. She's worked as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government. For the past decade, she's been looking into how dark money distorts our democracy. She explained that the Independent Women's Forum began as a group of women fighting in favor of Clarence Thomas's nomination to the Supreme Court. As a reminder... Anita Hill accused Thomas of sexual harassment. For many women on the left, seeing her testify to an all-white male Senate Judiciary Committee was a catalyst for action. A record number of women were elected to Congress the following year. But the Independent Women's Forum became a foil for that women-led progress. Like Phyllis Schlafly and her organizations, the Independent Women's Forum put women on the front lines of the war against progress this time led by a woman named Heather Higgins. Though I'd wager a bet that you probably don't know her name, Heather Higgins has had a major impact on American politics the last few decades. 
She's the heir of the Richardson Pharmaceutical Fortune, a backer and ally of Newt Gingrich, and a dogged supporter of the conservative movement. One of the most shocking things um, that she has done is that there was a Senate candidate named Murdoch, and he made a number of statements, you know, about rape. There was another candidate in that same cycle who made a, a statement about pregnancy and rape. And what she did was actually, she had IWV run ads for them, basically helping them after they made those statements. Higgins has been involved with the Independent Women's Forum, or IWF, for the last 20 years. So what does the IWF actually stand for? Well, since its founding, they've opposed the Violence Against Women Act, Title IX, which provides for equal opportunity for women in sports, the idea of equal pay, paid sick leave, and the Affordable Care Act. Despite the organization's name, it is by no means independent. The confusion there is purposeful. I was going through a number of speeches that you know were on YouTube by Heather Higgins, in which she was bragging to donors that people think they're independent, but the people who need to know know they're really actually conservative. And so their branding is a big advantage uh, that they hold because their name does not convey basically their true role. This conservative, business-centric, anti-feminist, women-led activist group has proven extremely effective. In 2016, Wisconsin was the tipping point state for the presidential election. In other words, it was the state that put Donald Trump over the top. At least some of the credit belongs to the IWF. They ran an enormous outreach campaign, targeting almost 1.5 million independent and Republican women in the Badger State. They had a report commissioned about that work in which they claimed that they moved more than 200,000 voters in Wisconsin toward Donald Trump, who would not have voted for him but for their efforts. And as uh, you know, on Wisconsin, the election here was decided by just over 20,000 votes. And so the vote difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump was about 22,000 votes. And this group claims to have moved nearly 10 times that many uh, people, women in particular, toward Trump by making claims about the Affordable Care Act and making claims about the U.S. Supreme Court. Over the last four years, the IWF has continued to support the Trump administration's agenda. Part of its power is that it puts a softer, more palatable spin on extreme policies. Just look at the IWF's work on Social Security, health care, and immigration. What IWF, IWF has done before now is put out some messaging to try to defend Trump on immigration. Um, not directly supporting him, like not directly, for example, defending him, putting kids in cages. But instead, they've deployed this pretty insidious messaging before COVID in which they've claimed to their, the women that they're trying to reach that immigrants bring disease. It's really an extraordinary set of messaging. It was coming out at the time that that measles outbreak was happening from people who were not you know, vaccinating their kids, mm -hmm. Americans who were not doing that. And IWF used that opportunity to try to message its members that they should be supportive of Trump on immigration because of this, this fear that immigrants would bring disease to the U.S. Women, and specifically white women, have been fundamental in putting a gentler face on the Republican Party as it moves farther to the right. 
And because of this, there's deep investment in maintaining white women, conservative religious white women, and more independent white women as a Republican voting base. The system is often all-encompassing. For white evangelical women, it can be tough to separate politics from their religious communities, from their families and social networks, from the belief that a good Christian votes red. And for those who begin to question this messaging, who start to wonder if maybe there are other paths, the personal consequences can be devastating. Reverend Jen Butler felt that firsthand. She grew up as one of five kids and was close with her dad. He had a sort of born-again religious experience at the same time I did. And so we shared a deep faith bond. But as I went off and joined the Peace Corps and started in seminary studying feminist theology and liberationist theology and black liberation theology, my father became very intimidated by that to the point where, you know, at one point he told me that I was going to hell. And so I had to really, for a while, lose my relationship with my father in order to pursue that call and to um, do what I knew was right and to follow my own beliefs. And in the end, you know, I was somewhat able to make amends with him, but our relationship was never the same. And so I lost, you know, along the way also a number of friends and, and family members. And so I know when white evangelical women, for example, today, begin to explore a different mindset, they risk losing everything they hold dear. And so I actually admire their courage deeply when they do so. I mean, evangelical communities, and I've, I've been a part of a number of them, are very, very supportive. You know, you, you go to church three times a week. A lot of that is fun social activity. There's a lot of support for raising children. When you give birth to children, people come over and bring you stuff. You know, it is, it is your whole world, your whole social circle, your whole support system. And the belief system wrapped up in it is something that, that keeps you safe and gives you meaning in life and helps you get through the hard times. You know, to lose those friendships, to lose that community, to have them turn around and shun you and think that there's something wrong with you. And then to dismantle your belief system and have to build it again from the ground up. Wow, you know, <laughs> I think I went through that myself in a, a couple of different phases of my life. And, you know, it is a dark night of the soul. You know, it's, it's, it's earth shattering. It's, a, it's death of a thousand deaths, <laughs> losing friendships, family and beliefs. Um, and yet, you know, I would say to people who, who go through that, and my husband and I led a ministry in Washington, D.C. for a while, of people who I called nomads who were coming out of that kind of faith and finding a new, vibrant, complexified faith it is also, I look back on those moments in my life and I think those are the moments when I was most alive. Given the intensity with which the Republican Party holds on to these white women, is it even possible to organize them for progressive purposes? The folks I spoke with said yes, but it isn't going to be easy. It starts with our own organizing, engaging women we know in our communities, families, churches. It starts with conversation. Reverend Jen Butler believes immigration might provide a way in. 
it's not necessarily a major shift in religious belief or theology. You know, I think that these these women are still very devout, very, very, you know, Christian, very rooted in their faith, still very evangelical. And yet they see the connections between their scriptural beliefs and the call to, you know, bring good use to the poor and liberation to the oppressed. You, you can't um, be separating children from their parents at the border and call yourself a Christian. Lisa Graves, meanwhile, suggests that we need to shine a light on the dark money in politics. That, she says, could change the game. You know, I think that it's important always in, in these sorts of efforts to try to speak to people uh, from the heart uh, about the issues that matter and, you know, try to build those bridges of dialogue. There is no requirement that um, there be disclosure of the major donors of groups like IWF that are playing a role in our elections. Um, and I think if the American people, when the American people learn who that small number of people are who are having such a disproportionate impact on our elections, there will be real accountability for that distortion. Elise Hoag says we must talk openly about the fear tactics used by the conservative organizing machine. By saying the quiet part out loud, we can reduce its power and influence. It's really terrifying to hold a mirror up and just say, I'm going to move forward because my country depends on me. Actually moving through that fear and having this courageous conversation and talking to, you know, I'm from Texas, like I said, I have a lot of people who are not political in my family and calling out the things that Trump and Kellyanne Conway and Laura Ingram and all of these people are trying to tap into in all of our internal biases to manipulate you emotionally in this moment. And let's talk about that. And let's talk about our own, you know, I think people get really hung up on like, I've been complicit. If I confront that, what do I, I, I don't know how to make it better. I don't know how to undo past harms. So I don't want to say anything, right? And we have to just surface that and say, yeah, none of us know, you know, I run a legacy organization. We have like, a, we we have done harm. You know, I I have to sit with that and sit in discomfort and think about ways to actually move us forward. Conversation alone isn't enough. It's the bare minimum. We have to reject the machine that feeds on white women's most basic fears. Then we need to organize ourselves and join hands with the women of color who have long been leading us on the path to progress. It won't be the first time that we've attempted to build multiracial solidarity, but we need to ask ourselves, how do we make this time, this moment, actually transformative? Those of us calling on white women to join the movement are not simply engaging with apolitical people. We're also engaging a demographic that has been highly targeted and organized by the right. The difficulty of this work shouldn't be understated. Still, there are signs of movement, particularly in parts of the country so coveted by Trump this election, the suburbs. If there was one group who moved politically between 2016 and 2020, it was those suburban women that Trump so actively courted. Next week, we return to the suburbs to explore white women's great awakening of 2016, what's happened in the years since, and what impact it's had on the elections that have followed. 
White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley and Edie Allard. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. You can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. You can follow me on Twitter at Julie K. Kohler One. See you next week. We are living in a political moment in the United States that demands we make our voices heard. And the most effective way to campaign is by talking to the people you know. From Wonder Media Network, Majority 54 equips you with the tools to talk to your conservative friends and acquaintances, counter misinformation that's gone rampant online, and still maintain relationships with those whose opinions differ from your own. Each week, co-hosts Jason Kander and Ravi Gupta are helping Americans who voted for progress to convince those who didn't to join our majority. Now more than ever, we must stand up, reach out, and work to make lasting change in our government and beyond. Listen to Majority 54 wherever you get your podcasts.